Welcome to I Am Helen Keller's Daughter podcast. My name is Laura Newman, and I want to share my story about my mother's deafness, blindness, and dependency on prescription medication, her schizophrenia and bipolar disorder, and the resulting of my chronic trauma throughout my childhood and adulthood. I'm currently an unexplored speaker, eager to share my story of resilience with anyone who wants to listen and who will find meaning and learn from my life. My vision is to help listeners discover what it feels and looks like to live without sight, hearing, connection, and love. The unknown community of the deaf and blind world, children of deaf adults, and the association of cultural awareness that my parents were without, and us, that subsequently hurt two forthcoming generations. I will share all of my pain and everything I learned. I provide real life accounts in my healing. Welcome back to podcast six. So this podcast is going to be a little different, but in line with my last five podcasts. So my whole purpose of the podcast is to share my story and to also share the tools that I needed of healing and overcoming a lot of my um, difficulties of dealing with my past and losing my parents and living on my own and things like that. So I have to stop the story to interject some big pieces of my life that really um, affected me, which was rejection. So this whole podcast is about rejection and how that really... um, was in the back of my mind all the way until I hit my early 30s and how I was able to recognize that I had the root of rejection and how I had to overcome it. And so I really hope that by sharing these um, stories and how I healed and and some of the things that I've done, that it touches somebody that's listening. Um, And you don't necessarily have to have trauma the same way that I have, which is through feeling rejected by my parents and feeling neglected of love and things like that. It could be a root of rejection that is, you know, through a divorce or through abandonment through your grandparents or a significant other or just rejection from friends, coworkers, all kinds of stuff. And so somewhere out there, I know there's going to be some souls listening. And so this is here to show you that you're not alone and that maybe you will find some um, some help from listening to my podcast. So my last podcast, I talked a lot about um, starting the group homes and how I was you know, tricked into charter, which is trauma in itself when you deceive somebody. When you lie to somebody, especially people that are supposed to be trusting and you don't tell them the truth, it makes it harder for somebody to trust those same people or trust anybody that is of significance in their lives. And so you can see that every moment that I shared of my transition from moving at home to Charter, which was now remember, if you didn't listen to my last podcast, that's okay. Charter was, well, it's not okay. You got to go back and listen. But Charter... um. Chart is just a place that, that was created for people under the age of 18 that needed help, uh, whether it was a substance abuse or some kind of eating disorder. Basically, anybody that was having some psychological problems and needed a place to stay, um, not because it was unavailable at a home, but because they felt that being in a different environment with special doctors and being around people like us, similar, similar experiences would be a good um, environment to help heal and um, overcome some of the obstacles. And so we will know that that, that idea might have been meaningful in the beginning, but they um, are no longer around. And so that probably explains everything in itself there. Anyways, so I was tricked into it. And I moved into group homes and 
just being involved in the welfare system, even though their, you know, their their purpose is to help families, is traumatic in itself. When you're being removed from a home, it's traumatic. When you're being tricked, it's traumatic. And so there's these little accounts of uh, losing people's trust and feeling like I had no um, security over myself, no say over myself, because. In most states, a child doesn't have any rights over their, over themselves until they're either 17 or 18. It depends on the jurisdiction. But so I wanted to talk about rejection because a lot of times we know that we've experienced it and, you know, it'll come to our mind at some point in our experiences, whether we're going through a hard time or we're grieving or we're just sitting back reading a book or, you know, and something comes across and stimulates a memory that we've got stored away. And we're like, yeah, that's totally me. And then we think about it, contemplate it. Sometimes we, um, a lot of hurtful memories will come up and then we kind of just push it back because we have, thought that we are we've moved on and that we're in a different place and life is better our relationships are better you might be married you might have a great life a house you know like what's the point of thinking about these things what i need to do is heal and move on but most of the time healing and moving on just means that you just forget about it there's no you just it's not even that you avoid it you just put it in the back of your mind and not let that bother you so you think right and so that's kind of my point of the conversation that i want to um, bring up to light, especially through all my studies. I mean, through my master's program, through being, um, I don't know if people know this, I'm a lifespan psychology instructor at Cale University in Waukesha, Wisconsin. And it's so interesting because every chapter just reminds me of my life. But so rejection, I want to explain in my terms, in my own definitions, and in my own experience. Um, rejection is like uh, any other form of pain in the idea of uh, trauma. So rejection hurts very much so in many ways, psychologically, physically, emotionally. And so what ends up happening really is the moment that you experience some kind of rejection, you go through some kind of self-evaluation. In my experience, I when I found out that I was never going to go back home, you know what, let me just backtrack. I was reading this book called Woman Evolve. Um, it's from this pastor. Her name is Sarah Jake, Jakes Roberts. And so she has this book called Woman Evolve, and she's really good at um, getting to the heart of things. She's And she's just really good at being able to describe things, explain things, and then make you think about like the way that you're living and the choices and the behaviors you're making. You're like, yeah, I do do that. I I should think about that. Well, so I'm trying to be, you know, I'm trying to either build my own books or courses to help people that have experienced trauma. And I want to help parents that have experienced trauma learn how to help um, heal themselves and then give them some parenting skills that way when they are raising their own children that they feel equipped and so that they don't carry on intergenerational trauma. And so, you know, I'm thinking about all these ways that I want to help people. So I'm reading this book. She's an entrepreneur herself. And so she's like, before you really can get into things, you need to really kind of get at the root of some of your own things that might be slowing you down or holding you back. And so, of course, you know, I'm a little doubtful because I'm like, how am I? How am I going to be able to make this? How am I going to make money and support myself and have a retirement? In what ways will I help people? Because I really feel like my story reaches a, a, a range of people, people that are culturally different, people that have been rejected in the child welfare system, the juvenile justice system, um, domestic violence, homelessness. I mean, 
I've been through a lot. And so I'm like, who can I help? Where do I start? Who do I help first? And things like that. Um, how much do I use my story with God? I want people to know that that was that Jesus really changed my life, but I don't want to turn people away from healing if that's not where they are. I want to give people the tools and how do I start this, right? So this book, and so she says, what I want you to do is I want you to get to the very root of everything and try to, you know, go all the way back to the point of something that has hurt you or changed your life and what what might be permitted, you know, per- prohibiting you from um, doing the things you want to do. And I was like, well, I really am kind of having my foot, you know, steps in the direction. But so I sat there reading at night by myself. And then I was like, wow. And it was the first time, which is really interesting because, you know, your memories are there. And sometimes you just need some kind of visual or audio, audio or smell to bring those, you know, memories back. You know, you might be like, wow, I haven't thought of that in a long time. And so there it was. I can remember vividly me sitting there at the group home, my very first group home that I shared with you guys, and telling myself that I was such a bad person as a child that I couldn't even have my parents love me. And that because I wasn't listening or following the rules, I had got myself kicked out of my house and would no longer have my parents. Like I was being punished because I was a bad kid. And I remember at that point, I just thought that I was just not a good enough person to be loved. And from that point on, I saw myself as somebody that had a deficit that I was just not a good enough person and I would never be good enough for anything. Who could love a child or who could do anything right in the world if their own parents couldn't even love them? Like, And so I got to say that again. That's what I told myself. How would I ever be good at anything if I can't even have my own parents love me. And so as I was going back and forth through the group homes and things like that, I had believed that I was never going to be good enough for anything. And so as I picked, you know, my friends, as I picked my boyfriends, as I chose my career, as I chose my majors, I always had this idea in the back of my head that I wouldn't be good enough. And so that's partly the reason why I never started speaking or sharing my life with anybody, because I just felt like I wouldn't have the tools to help anybody, that I would somehow sabotage myself because I just didn't have the resources based off of my past, based off the fact that my parents weren't around, they didn't support me, I lived in my home, I was homeless, you know, long list of things. And so I didn't realize that I also became somewhat of a people pleaser. And I hope that people really understand what I mean by people pleasing. It's this fear of somebody telling me that they don't want to be my friend. They don't want to um, be with me in a relationship, even though I don't walk around and say these things to myself or the people that I meet. It's this unconscious thought that I had created when I was 12, 13 years old. And here I am in my later life, afraid of having people being upset with me because I would quickly blame myself for being a bad person. And so people pleasing really just meant for me that I had a hard time saying no, because I didn't want anybody to say, well, then I guess I'm just not going to work with you. I don't want to be your friend. I just didn't know that I would be fully capable of healing and bouncing back from being rejected. I just always wanted to avoid that feeling. And I did everything I could to avoid those feelings. So rejection, rejection obviously really hurts. And 
you don't realize it. And I want to say this because it's in my life, the, I'm giving you a clear definition and example of my life, how I avoided everything I could to feel those feelings of rejection again. And that would be by creating environments that were suited to me and keeping friendships probably longer than I needed to taking jobs where I kind of didn't want to take the job, but I did it because the manager or the hiring boss at the time, this is when I was a little younger, was really nice. So I didn't, you know, I, I wanted to please them. It felt good to be shown affection and love and to lose that moment of love or affection would be devastating for me. Um, and so it was interesting because when I read the book, I was like, yeah, I do see myself. I, I, I can see it in my life. How I always just was worried that I would mess up. And even in my own, you know, journal and my devotions and when I'm, you know, trying to navigate through life like anybody else in the world, you know, you have this tendency to compare yourself through the lens of deficiencies. You think that you're not showing up in the world um, the same way as other people or that you're never going to have what it takes to um to get anywhere because you're so worried of your past. Like, well, I never had the support. I'm never going to have the kind of support that I need. Who's going to love me? Who's going to cheer me on? Who's going to encourage me when I feel like I can't do it? Nobody. So of course I'm never going to make it. And so you, you have these lens of not only that root of rejection, but the way you think your life is going to be from here on out. And so you literally live the way that you think. And so I, I, I really found that I was having a hard time um, realizing that throughout the longest time, I just didn't believe in myself. And I just thought that I would be second best. Um, I felt like I didn't belong when I was in places of um, really prestige work or employment. I just felt like, yeah, my heart and my soul is here. It's my purpose, but I just, I'm not going to be good as that coach down, down the down the tread the treadmill aisle. I'm not going to be as good as those trainers that are over in the strength training section. I I want to change people's lives. I want to I want to influence people, uh, but I'm probably never going to be as good. I want to have a healthy marriage, and I want to have the best relationships with people's parents, but I'm probably never going to be able to achieve that because my life is second rated. It's there's these holes and these gaps of till this day, you know. And so here I am having this deficient life and I'm trying to show up. So those things, um, one thought after another really starts to create this world that's not even really true because none of those things are true. If anything, there's something that I've always had to remind myself, like I am complete. I am perfect the way I am. There's nothing wrong with me. Those deficiencies that I thought of and created in my heart are actually what made me the most strongest, beautiful soul there is today. And so it's hard to say, well, your problems and your adversities are really what make you, but they really are. They really are. So anyways, um, so back to the rejection and our thoughts and how we are unconsciously um, living out these thoughts that we have. And so I studied a lot of the brain epigenetics, which just pretty much you being the surgeon, quote unquote, on changing the way you think about yourself and the way that you think about environments, which then in change uh, changes the way that your brain looks and functions. It turns on the genes. It um it it literally changes your life when you're able to think the right thoughts because it changes literally the structure of your brain, and that's why it's like quote unquote a surgeon. You're working. You're rewiring. You're reshaping your brain 
the chemicals, the signals, the way you see, the way you function. And so um, another example that I was thinking about that would be able to describe to you, because I hope that I'm making clear um, connections, is when you're when you're hurt in a significant way, you know, you, you start off, like for me, I started off with this mindset of, okay, so if my parents don't love me, then I must have really messed up because I don't see anybody else around me that's having these issues. Like every friend of mine has their parents. And so in the very beginning, I think people who have hurt, um, experienced rejection almost are kind of like on the fence about it and trying to figure out, validate or invalidate their thoughts of being somebody that's not good enough, lovable, worthy, you name it, however you're feeling. And so you kind of validate or invalidate your rejection through your experiences with other people. You're looking at the reactions and the conversations and the outcomes and the follow-up of your friends, your teachers, your colleagues, anybody. And at that time, mine's definitely was through the social workers and the people at the group homes and through my parents, whether or not they would pick up their phone and talk to me or what it felt like when I was sitting in detention for being a runaway and um, how the staff interacted with me. So I kept on trying to figure out whether or not I was really a bad person. But, you know, you lose focus on invalidating or validating your feelings of rejection because life keeps going. And not only that, but I was getting thrown into group homes and I was trying to, you know, figure out school. I was going to different schools. So, after a while, I didn't focus on this this validation that or invalidation that I was looking for. I was still evaluating whether or not I was worthy of love and if I was a bad person, but I wasn't doing it consciously anymore. I just was doing it all the time and also living at the same time. So now I'm now I'm doing all these things unconsciously because you know my working memory. I can only think of so many things at one time. I'm still experiencing life, so. This unconscious evaluation and invalidation and validation has been going on for a very long time. I mean, as you progress through life, you know, after two years, think about the number of experiences that you have gone through, the way that you evolve, how much credits you've got done with school, where you're working, whether you got married, had kids. And so all of those things kind of layer on to your your experiences and into your memory that you don't even realize that at one point in your life, you had decided that you were unworthy of love and you also were validating it and then you still were, but you didn't realize it. And then you fast forward 20 years later and you don't even know that this is the way that you've been thinking the entire time. And so another another thing that I realized that I did when I was growing up and I was on my own, um, when I was like running away from group homes and being homeless, and having this feeling of rejection of just not being a good person, what I started to do is, I think what any other person does, and you start to deny or reject or avoid the way that you feel. And this happened. Um, it was interesting. So I started running away from the group homes because they're very uncomfortable and they were scary. And I'll explain how they are scary. I have this, I created this um, like analogy this morning to to show what it feels like to be in a group home, because I feel like it's really hard to understand what it looks like and feels like to be in a group home. So I'm going to show, um, show how that feels. Hopefully I connect the dots for everybody. But so when I started running away from these group homes, I did so because I hated them. But, um, but then I chose to be homeless 
So that meant that I didn't have clothes. I didn't eat. I didn't shower. I didn't have a place to brush my teeth. Most of the time I was like, so I was on the east side of Milwaukee and there was like this bowling alley that had like three bars in it and an arcade. So this place was friendly to people under the age of 18 before 9 p.m. And then friendly to people over the age of 21 after 9 p.m. Um, basically during the bar hours. And so I would go to this place and I would, I would literally go in their bathroom and I would wash my face. I would try to brush my teeth. I would use the bathroom um, sometimes I would sit in there during the school hours, um, when I was supposed to be in school so that like the cops wouldn't see me just randomly walking the streets. And so they wouldn't pick me up and take me back to a group home. You learn pretty fast how to be very careful about being detected by cops. And so you'll do anything. You'll walk in the alleys, you'll walk at night. I mean, you put yourself in unsafe situations never to be caught. And so I remember one time at this bowling alley, there was like a model shoot and I didn't have any clothes. Like I literally had nothing. And so I was like, wow, a new shirt and new pants. And I remember I took it and I stole it and I felt good and I felt fresh and I felt alive again because I had this like clean outfit on. So um, another thing I would do a lot when I was homeless is I would like wait for my boyfriend to get off of work. And so I literally would sit in front of his job for eight hours a day. I mean, doing nothing. Just looking at people, watching people, talking to, it was at Pizza Hut, talking to the drivers that were coming in and out. After a while, they started to know who I, who I was, and I have no idea what they thought of me. I mean, I was this homeless girl. They knew I was homeless, sitting in front of their in front of his job, waiting for him to get off of work because I needed a place to live. I needed, I needed something to eat, and I just would wait, and I just needed something to do. I mean, there was nothing else for me to do, no other place for me to go. I couldn't go to our friend's house during school in school because they were in school. So anyways, I didn't really understand that I was homeless because I just was living in the moment. And also when you're homeless, I will say you're really worried about the next place that you're going to live. You're not really worried about um, things like your education or making friends or what people think. You just you're so focused on surviving that other things are just kind of oblivious. But even though I was homeless, I still didn't realize I was homeless. It wasn't until the time. So I hid this for myself, right? So I realized I was homeless at one point, just like rejection. I realized I was rejected. And then I started to hide it. And then it came back to me. Um, One of the driver's friends knew that I was homeless. And he was always like, oh, how are you doing, Laura? He was super nice. And, you know, he would kind of like give me words of encouragement. But one day he was like, do you mind talking to my kids about being homeless? You know, they're kind of like not really interested in being in school. And I was thinking that if I gave you like 10 bucks, took you out to eat a Dairy Queen right next door, would you mind helping? And I was like, well, yeah, sure. I was like pumped. I was like, I get $10 and I also get the tell. I also get a free meal. Yeah, I'll do it. And so, you know, he, he sits, he, he, we all set up a date and then he like brings us into Dairy Queen And we all order food and he's like, you can have anything you want. And I was like, wow. You know, I didn't even know what it felt like to have somebody say, sure, pick what you want. It was always these limitations and rules. And I didn't have anybody buying anything for me. That in itself speaks very loud. I was a young child that didn't even know what it felt like to have somebody say, have anything you want. So, you know, I think I ordered like a chicken basket um, with fries. And so we sit down and you know, honestly, I remember this very vividly. It's so interesting how much I remember. Um, I forgot that I was there to talk to his kids. I think I was so, I was so busy feeling loved 
and feeling like I was a part of a family that I forgot my purpose of being there. And so I was talking to him and the kids and I remember he kept on trying to prompt me. He was like, so tell us about yourself. And I was like, I'm doing good. You know, saying things that just made no sense. Also, I was very young. I was like 13, 14 years old. Didn't know even how to start a conversation, how to be a mentor, how to be a leader. I was so broken. I I mean, I was just there, clueless. And so he, he's like, all right, well, so Laura, she is homeless. And explain to us how why you're homeless. And so I gave him my story, which was what I told myself when I got when I was moved out. I said, you know, I'm a really bad kid. I don't do things right. I stopped going to school and um, my parents kicked me out and I went to a group home and I don't like it and I'm here now. And so I'm homeless and I don't have a place to go. And as I was saying that to him, I had finally realized that I was homeless. As crazy as that sounds, I really finally admitted out loud to myself and said it to other people, and I watched other people's expressions, his expression and those kids' expressions. And I had realized that even though I was homeless and I was just going day to day and trying to survive, I had not really realized that I was 13, 14 years old with no parents and homeless, not in school, no room, no bedroom, no bathroom, no TV, no friends, no siblings, no family members, no more holidays, nothing, not even toys. As a young girl that might have had a journal or some kind of like caboodle with makeup on it, nothing. And it was at that moment that I became ashamed of my life, very ashamed. And I remember the kids were asking me questions like, well, where do you eat? How do you shower? And their expressions were, of course, of a typical kid that was like, ew, so you don't shower. And the shame just kept pouring in and pouring in and pouring in. And I remember I told myself, I was like, I should have never done this. And so he he got his kids, brought them back in his car, and he gave me the $10. And he was like, thanks for doing that, Laura. You know, I really appreciate it. If you need anything, let me know. And he walks away and he gets in the car with his kids and he leaves. And I looked and I said, oh my gosh, he gets to go home with his family and I get to go back to the sidewalk and sit and wait for my boyfriend. And at that moment is when shame settled in. I was so ashamed of myself. And of course, as a defense mechanism, I was like, I never want to feel this way again. And so at that t- at that moment, and I mean, I... Of course, my memory is probably not the best, but I, I'm pretty sure that's when I said, I'm never going to tell anybody that I'm homeless. I'm never going to tell anybody that my parents don't love me. I'm never going to tell anybody that I got kicked out. I'm never going to tell anybody about my group homes. And so I hid my story from everybody. I just lied and said, no, no, yeah, I live with my parents. And I mean, I'm just, you know, there's no school today or yeah, my parents said I could eat here and, and just hid everything, which really... um made me desensitized to what was really going on in my life. So in a way, it was a protective factor because I don't think I could have lived with the fact that I missed my parents every day. I had to put that behind me. But because I put everything behind me, because I didn't feel the feelings, if I I didn't authentically feel what I felt, I had learned how to use that as a coping mechanism. And I never told myself, okay, when you turn 18 or when you turn 21 or when you reunite with your parents, you need to really reflect and think about the things that happened. And it's okay. You can start telling people your story. You can feel the feels, you know, you can feel your feelings. It's great to feel your feelings. 
Not at all. At that day, I decided that. And while I, at the moment, I was very, in the very beginning where I was very cautious not to tell anybody, it became routine. It became unconscious. And it was my unconscious behavior. So here I am with rejection. And here I am with shame. And my entire, my entire well-being, my life through college, all of those things, I hid my life from everybody. I refused to tell anybody what happened to me out of shame. And so, um, I guess my point of sharing that is I think it's very important to find your root of rejection, shame, and to uh, feel your feelings and to start bringing them into light. And so that's a really hard thing to say because I don't want to just say, all right, see you next podcast. But if you could just start to think about those things in your heart and continue to listen to my podcast and see where I can take where I can help you. And I also said, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to try to build these courses and these books to help people because I feel like, I feel like my purpose was to go through probably the worst pain ever, ever. I mean, I think there is no, in my opinion, I don't know any other pain of rejection from your parents and living, being homeless and being alone and never having an education. (laughs) I mean, it's the worst feeling in the world. It really is. Um, and I hope that I can share my my experience and my my education, which really saved me. But uh, before I close, I always try to keep it at 30 minutes. We're at 29 minutes. So just bear with me for a little longer as I talk about um, some of the things. The One of the reasons why I ran away from the group home and I talked about how I, I created this in this morning, this analogy, I need people to really understand what group homes are about. Not a lot of us are experienced it, or maybe a lot of us have experienced it in your heart is going to is going to be with me for one second here. Our souls are going to align because we're going to know exactly what this feels like. Okay, so imagine this. Imagine that you are um you right now, you're a person, a hum- you're an adult, right? And you're you're going to AA meetings, right? And so when you go to AA meetings, you're really there um uh in hopes to uh you know, overcome this um this dependency on alcohol to kind of understand the underlying um, reasons of why you're drinking and to be surrounded around people that are like you because people like in the group are going to have similar experiences, understand you, no judgment. And when you go to these groups, right, there's always a facilitator. There's somebody that has this expertise. They start the end, they end the group. They are bringing words of encouragement. They're guiding the discussion. They're giving you support. Um, and in the group, you know, there's a sense of safety. People are going to be encouraging. They're going to be loving. They're going to, they're going to be mindful. They're going to keep your story confidential. There's no going to be, there there might be angry outbursts, but then there's going to be a debriefing, healthy, let's deescalate this. Let's address this. Let's learn these coping mechanisms, right? You can, I can, I, I, outside of the fear of change and what's to come, I feel like going to these meetings, you're going to feel like it's a safe place because uh, all of these components that are there. Now, imagine being in a group home. Okay, now this is the analogy. This is where it is. When you're in a group home, you're sitting in the same circle. But instead of having a facilitator or some kind of therapist or somebody that's licensed or somebody that cares, or there's nobody there. There's nobody there to facilitate what's going on. There's nobody to end what's going on. There's nobody there to give counseling. There's nobody there to encourage. There's nobody directing you. There's nobody interjecting. You have no, no, um, no guidance, no adult there whatsoever. 
that's helping you um, go through what you're going through as a as a, a young adult that has no longer that's no longer living at home in, involved in the welfare or the juvenile or both systems. There's nobody there, and you're sitting in this circle really with other girls that are broken and that have no filter, and they're yelling at you and they're screaming and they're upset and they're afraid and they're broken and they're rejected and they're saying things that are scary to you. You don't understand what's going on. They're pouring their entire story on you and you don't even know how to cope with your own story and you're listening and you're listening to them and you're scared. And in the group, this happens day after day after day after day. You get new people come who are really angry. You even get new people that come in and they bully you. And there's nobody around that's facilitating anything. Nobody there to interject, nobody to show you love, nobody to show you how to cope, nobody to give you hope, guidance, to listen to you, to hold your hand, to hug you, to weep with you, nothing. And so we're all under, we're all under the age of 18. And so cognitively, our brains have not even developed to even process what's going on. We don't even know how to express our feelings. We don't even know how to request for hope, even if we even had the courage to ask somebody for hope. And so everybody might be like, well, where's the people that work there? Exactly. They're there hired, probably getting paid $15 an hour. Go look it up on Indeed. Look how much these people are getting paid. They're not licensed. They're not, they're not people that are um, having life experiences or can be there to help us. And they are there to make sure that we're safe, right? And they're there to make sure that we eat and shower and things like that. Kind of like a babysitter, an in-house babysitter. But outside of that, we don't have anything whatsoever. And so when you live in that situation, when you're in that environment, it's nothing but trauma. Trauma after trauma after trauma after trauma, pain, rejection. It is probably, I would say that the reason why I ran away is because it was a lot easier to live as a homeless person with nowhere to go and to be around people that were somewhat loving than to sit in that circle of uncertainty, fear, rejection, pain, anger, bullying. It, the group homes were scary. And so... I chose to be homeless over living in a group home. And now that I'm older, I'm not going to say my age unless I said it already, but I'm not going to say it again. Um, After reflection, after education, after really journaling, after my everything, I will tell you right now, if I had to choose to go one to the other, after everything that I know, everything that I know, the benefits of group homes, if any, I would never go back to a group home. And that is something that's probably on my larger my larger agenda. I really feel like we need to reform group, reform, reform group homes. If you're putting these young people that are completely broken into a place without any help or guidance, and you're adding trauma to their already broken lives and taking freedom from them and all of these things, how do you expect them to grow and evolve and live healthy lives? How do you expect them to have relationships? How do you expect them to feel like they belong, to not feel deficient, to feel second best. And so I share that because I think a lot of times people are like, well, you should have never ran away. And so you chose to be homeless. Well, I chose to live the, I I chose to be in the healthier option. And that's what I did. Okay. So (laughs) this podcast was heavy, right? I really hope that um, everybody has, is finding something from this. 
whether it's your own pain that you've hidden from yourself, whether you need a journal, whether you need to get down on your knees and pray and ask God to help direct you and see where you need to be and where your healing is and what you've hidden from yourself, to think about those kids that are in the group homes, to uh, to love people, right, and not judge them, and to extend grace to people that are... Um, that don't even see what's going on. You can see them externally, but they can't see what they're doing. People like me that didn't realize they're people pleasers and so forth. So, um, like I said, I am in the in the making of creating a course and books um, that are going to be there to help people heal. So I will keep you updated with that. Um, I I just want to say thank you everybody for listening to my podcast. You guys are amazing. So I look forward to seeing you guys in Podcast Seven. Thank you for listening. Bye.